2: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Hi, I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me, Every single day, 365 days a year, for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Dan Kois is the author of Vintage Contemporaries, a novel. Dan is an acclaimed journalist, writer, editor, and podcaster at Slate, where his work has been nominated for two National Magazine Awards and a Writers Guild Award. He's the author of How to Be a Family, a memoir of parenting around the world, and with Isaac Butler, the co-author of The World Only Spins Forward, an oral history of Tony Kushner's Angels in America, which was in 2019's Stonewell Honor book. His work has appeared in The New York Times and The New Yorker. He's a frequent podcast co-host on Slate's Cultural Gab Fest and Mom and Dad are Fighting, and a host of You Pick Tonight and The Martin Chronicles. This is his debut novel, but his previous works of nonfiction have been featured and reviewed in The New Yorker, New York Times Book Review, Vogue, Los Angeles Times, New York, Washington Post, Long Reads, and elsewhere. He lives with his family in Arlington, Virginia. Welcome, Dan. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss vintage contemporaries.
2: Thanks for having me, Zibi.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure. Please tell listeners what your book is about.
2: I like to call it a comedy about broken friendships. In 1990s New York City, a young book publishing assistant makes two incredibly important friends to her, friends of her heart, you know, the kind of friends you make in your 20s where you sort of eat each other up, but then she loses them both. And then later in the 2000s in New York City, she's a book editor, she's a new mom, and these two friends come back into her life in different ways, and she has to decide, do I want these friendships back, even if they can't really be what they once were?
0: That's a great pitch. I love hearing great pitches. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I've been thinking about it a lot.
0: Well, it, it shows. I mean, a lot of people think about it a lot, but it doesn't make it great. There is a passage I have to read to you right away because I'm taking issue with it in terms of what makes good readers special.
2: Let me roll up my sleeves and get ready to fight.
0: Yes. This undermines my entire life here. This is about the power of reading and all of that. You said, even as her belief in her own specialness had bled away, she'd managed an English degree, and even with some modest undergraduate renown as a writer, it helped that she simply read more than everyone else. And so while she knew her short stories were as derivative as those of her classmates, they were often derivative of writers her classmates had not yet read, all thanks to a skill that Emily knew was a fluke, an accident of eye-brain coordination no different from if she could roll her tongue. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how the readers feel about that. The fact So she could re- read really quickly and all that. Well, Tell me about part that. of the
2: argument of the book is about figuring out what role art plays in our lives. And I think a lot of people who grow up as readers – who grew up loving books, end up with an image of themselves as, oh, the person I am revolves around reading and writing, and I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to be a novelist. I'm going to make art. And part of Emily's journey in this book is figuring out that that she can love books and reading and, in fact, be committed to making art that doesn't mean she has to be an artist that doesn't mean she has to put that kind of onus on herself there are other ways she can facilitate the making of beautiful things she ends up being an editor a totally different job but one that you know as you know is crucially important but one that doesn't sort of get the you know the glory of the novelist up in her garret making the next beautiful thing
0: interesting so tell me about coming up with your characters and you play with everything you have such a great sense of humor it's like this very subtle like undercurrent of funny. It's, I love it. But Emily and then M, they both have the same names and they have to be like, okay, which one are we? Talk about those two characters and about their friendship. And, and we're, and were we talking about the limelight here when you reference this, this club? I don't know. From the nineties, I say.
2: (laughs) Uh, I'll leave it to readers to figure out which club that Madonna once danced in.
0: Okay. I'll have to Google it. (laughs)
2: Our main character finds herself in at the beginning of the book, feeling distinctly uncomfortable, like it's not her space. So, uh, yeah, she's a young woman named Emily who has just landed in New York after college. She grew up in Wisconsin and went to school in Connecticut, and this is sort of her first big city experience. It's 1991, and she meets another Emily, a much sort of tougher, more loud, more aggro, more in-your-face Emily, one who sort of seems to her like... The city version of her country mouse, the person she could be if maybe she just like really got it together. They become instant friends, but as you say, they have to figure out who's gonna be who. It would be too confusing, as they say to the reader, if they were both called Emily. So the stronger, more aggro Emily immediately declares our main character, M. You're M, she says. I'm not M. I could only ever be Emily, but you can change your name. And she does. I think a lot of people have friendships like this in their 20s where you already feel like the same person, and I thought it would be fun in this book to play with that really literally and give them the same name, make them grapple with the ways that they can't tell each other apart, even from... From one another. Of course, the counsel I'd give to every writer is that if you make a decision like that, be prepared for like four years of intense, terrible copy editing, <laughs> discovering that you constantly have made mistakes and confused your own characters, Emma and Emily, over and over again.
0: Yeah. There's no find and replace and search and all this.
2: No, no, it's total disaster. No,
0: no. That's so funny. So I didn't realize... With the title, you were really referring to vintage, like as if it, the publisher and that like vintage contemporaries are the type of book that would come out, like a whole brand of book, right? As if I said like whatever, you know, Penguin Random House contemporaries, and that that was like also an you know insider publishing sort of reference. Uh, tell me about that.
2: Vintage contemporaries was a beloved imprint, a paperback imprint in the late 80s and early 90s. Those was published by then just Random House. The first book ever published in that line was Jay McInerney's Bright Lights, Big City, a huge bestseller, a sort of zeitgeist-defining book about being young in New York. And the book, I think it's very clear from this novel that MRM, the M of this novel, read before she went to New York and thought, oh, geez, is my life going to be like that? Do I have to do that much Coke? Is that like the way it works? <laughs> And those books represent to her a certain kind of publishing she aspires to. She aspires to publish hip new fiction edgy New York stories. And over the course of the novel, she discovers that that's not actually the kind of book she loves the most. And it's not the kind of book that this vintage contemporaries is. I like to think I was once hip, but I'm not certainly not hip anymore. And this book is not particularly edgy. It is sweet and a little bit soft and very gentle, but it's still about living in New York and about navigating those problems. And part of the argument of the book is, You can have a big city life. You can have a life in the arts that doesn't require you going to clubs, snorting cocaine, and being mean to people.
0: Yes. I survived the 90s in New York City, and I I did not have to do cocaine to get through it. I I survived. It was – it's fine.
2: I survived being a young person in New York City, and I had a bunch of sort of low-level traumas and things that went wrong, but in the end – I was okay.
0: Oh, wait. I want to hear about the low-level traumas. Or even the bigger-level traumas. Let's just go right into
2: it. Like Emily, like M, em, I also worked in book publishing as a young person, and I also really fucked it up. Am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Sure. I just really screwed it up. I... Found out I wasn't attuned to the job I had in very difficult and painful ways by messing up with the careers of authors I cared about, and that super sucked. (laughs) It also was a thing that I found my way through that did not then define the rest of my life. I worked for lousy bosses who, like historically lousy, like you've read about them being canceled, lousy bosses. And I got through it and I have gotten on with my life and become a person who I'm happy to be. That was the journey I wanted M to be on. If bad things happened to her, I wanted her to be okay. That was the kind of book I needed to write, you know, in my mid forties. <laughs>
0: There really isn't enough about, like, recovering—well, maybe there is, and I haven't searched for it, but—recovering from abusive bosses. Like, there's so much about recovering from abusive relationships, but there's this whole undercurrent. Like, who has not had a boss make her cry? I've been like—I've cried in the bathroom at so many jobs when I was younger. Like, that's just what happened. And yet, what do we do with all that? Nobody really, like, takes that forward and, and, like, analyzes that later. It's just, like, shoved away. I mean, aside from me, too. I don't mean me, too. I just mean, like, a not-so-nice boss. Right.
2: And what do we do with that in an era now in which that kind of boss hasn't disappeared? But I think young employees, especially in creative industries, are way less likely to encounter those kinds of bosses now, in part because of the changes that that generation, the young generation of 20 to 35-year-olds, have created in the Mm -hmm. workplace, which in general has been great for working environments, even if old people like me struggle (laughs) to understand it sometimes. (laughs) But so what do you do with the experiences that you think of as formative. Like, my bad bosses were terrible, but they also created me in a lot of ways. They showed me how not to work, Mm -hmm. how not to behave. They also probably made me better at what I did, even though it sucked while I was doing it. And then how do I process and think about that kind of experience in an era when that kind of experience is seen instantly and universally as a trauma from which you might never recover?
0: Hmm. Interesting. So how did you, when you set out to write the book, how did you come up with, or like which pieces of it as you went through it were like, I have to include this piece. Like this is a scene I must include because this is so funny. Or this is like, like, did you have a list of scenes before you started and said, this is the one, this one has to go in.
2: Absolutely not. This book was written in a comically haphazard manner. It was written because I turned 40 and I had like a mini midlife crisis about how I had not written a novel, even though I ostensibly had a master's degree in novel writing. You know, I'm a journalist. I write tons of nonfiction. I've written several nonfiction books, but I'd always thought of myself, you know, the way that M thinks of herself as... A storyteller, but I wasn't telling any story. I mean, I was telling stories to my kids at night and that was very nice, but I was not inventing things. And that drove me a little bit crazy. And so for about three or four years, whenever I had the energy at 1045 at night, after my kids went to bed, oh my I would like sit out on the porch for half an hour and just write a scene. Any scene, and I I had no dream of of them cohering into anything. I had no idea where they were coming from or what they would be. I was just writing scenes. I, I chose a woman at the center of it simply for like as a practical kludge so that I would remember to just not write about myself. So I could, every time I went into a scene, I could be like, oh, right, Dan, this isn't you. This is this totally different character you're inventing. And I did that for three or four years, and then I had like 150 pages, and then I looked at all of it and put my editor hat on and said, okay, if this was a novel, how would it work? How would you put it together? How would, how would it fit together? And from that, that is where vintage contemporaries came from. It came from a bunch of scenes I wrote in the nineties in New York and the two thousands in New York. And I didn't know how they went together. And finally I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to say they're all the same character and go for it.
0: Wow. That's so cool.
2: It's cool, but I would also not recommend it as a technique because it means it ends up taking you like six or seven years to write a book. At my age, who has that kind of time?
0: It's cool that it worked out. Let me say that way.
2: Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. I'm not. I'm gonna try to maybe write the next one faster.
0: <laughs> no, it's. You know, I feel like people when they're writing and they have all these moments where they're like, "I'm just gonna do this." They put themselves. Under so much pressure, like, well, I don't know what, what this is going to be, so it's nothing. But in, it turns out it's not nothing. Like, it could right, end it up It can
2: be something. It can be something. You, part of the point is that you can just decide that it's something. Yeah. Right? You can decide that the thing that you're working on is a book, whether it really is or not. And then that is the future that you are making for yourself. And it just, you just need to do a shitload of work to make it happen.
0: Wait, take me back. Where are, like, how did you get into this industry to begin with? Where are you from? Like, were you a big reader? And like, what were you like in high school? And just give me like more of a background here.
2: I, like M. grew up in Wisconsin. I, like Em, am a very fast reader. And that did define my childhood. We diverged then later because I didn't end up in New York till much later in my life. And while I was doing an MFA in fiction, I worked for a literary agency in Washington, D.C. And I think kind of really flopped at it, it, both of those things. I flopped at my MFA and I flopped at that literary agency. And then I sort of went out into the world and just tried... To write. I wanted to be writing arts criticism. I wanted to be reporting. I wanted to be doing journalism of some kind. And I eventually found my way to Slate Magazine, which, uh, where I've been working for 11 years now as an editor and a writer. And I've sort of carved out a niche for myself at that magazine, writing about culture and parenting and stuff that I'm interested in. But I definitely remember those days in my twenties when I was flailing and trying to figure out what it is I could possibly be good at after a, a whole teenagehood spent being really, really good at reading fast and not understanding that only in some fields is that a marketable skill.
0: How how fast are we talking here?
2: Uh, well, <laughs> I have any I'm, metrics associated with this. I've never done a page per minute deal. But I I definitely can knock off a solid-length novel in a couple of hours. And amazingly, my daughter, who's now 17, reads so much faster than me that I now ask her the same thing my parents asked me when I would be like, Okay, I'm done with this book. I, like, grill her. Oh, yeah? What happens in that book? What happens in the middle? What happens to this character? And she always knows. She just reads really freaking fast. It is evident to me that though I haven't necessarily seen it, my brain is clearly deteriorating, (laughs) being subsumed into hers, and she has stolen all my power.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we
2: eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials?
0: I've actually found that the speed of reading is not fixed. It's like a variable skill. It's it's. Mm-hmm. I have sped up. It, the, like, the more I've read the last few years, I mean, I've always read quickly myself, but the more and more I read and the more I work at it, the faster I get Like running. Not that I'm getting right. any faster at running. Right. It's, no. Yes,
2: you're training in yeah. a way. It also varies, of course, according to what you're reading and your engagement yes. with the material. Certain kinds of books fly. Mm-hmm. Certain kinds of books are work, and that work isn't always bad. Sometimes it can be really rewarding, but it's a totally different experience. But, yeah, for those of us who have sort of always thought of ourselves as reading people, often we share that that weird skill of just being able to process stuff fast, and that meant that from an early age, that was the thing we were good at, right? Like I think of the friends I had in high school who were just natural athletes. Mm -hmm. They were always rewarded for that instantly from a very young age. People said, oh, you're so... You're so great at baseball, or you have such a great arm, or you're so fast. I was fast, but only with a book in front of me. I was very slow in every other capacity.
0: Well, most of those people have slowed down anyway.
2: As have I. (laughs) All our bodies become decrepit in different ways. That's just the way it goes.
0: Oh, my gosh. That's really funny. So... You also podcast, as I do, obviously, because here we are. Mm -hmm. Tell me about getting into podcasting and also podcasting with your daughter. Tell me about that.
2: Well, the magazine I work at Slate was a real forerunner in the podcasting revolution. We had one of the first commercial podcasts ever released. And so when parenting young children had completely taken over my life, as it does for basically anyone who has any kid between, like, zero and 12. I thought, this is the thing I'm thinking about the most. This is all I want to talk about. Slate needs a parenting podcast. So I pitched one at Slate and they said, sure. And I launched it with Allison Benedict, who was then at Slate, and she's now at the Opinion section of the New York Times. And for many years, we, every week, would just get together and talk about our triumphs and fails as parents, talk about what was in the news, answer questions from listeners. And it really connected us to this amazing community An amazing, supportive, and sometimes critical community of other parents out there who are having the same struggles as us and who are all struggling most of all not to judge each other too harshly because that is the the thing that every parent wants to do but that we were really trying to steer clear from. And then a couple years ago in the middle of the pandemic, my daughter and I, I have two daughters, and and we were all going completely insane, stuck inside the house. And so I suggested to my older daughter, let's launch a podcast. I've got this microphone, Uh, I've got this stuff. We like watching movies we like talking about movies, let's just launch a podcast. So we did. It's called You Pick Tonight. In each show, she picks a movie for us to watch, and I pick a movie for us to watch, and then we argue about them, which is how we end up, for example, having a whole show where I have to come to grips with the fact that she doesn't think Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is a particularly good movie, mm. and I need her to, like, explain Akira to me.
0: <laughs> I feel like I have to do that with my kids and TV shows. We have to like balance the uh, what is the one we're watching Lego Masters I don't know I have younger mm-hmm. kids and older kids but um mm-hmm. yeah we, we have the older kids face off against the younger kids for which shows we're watching all the time maybe I should have the two of them do the two groups of them do podcasts I don't know right
2: so they, the older kids explain things to the younger kids and then the older kids are shocked to discover that in fact the younger kids could explain things to them as well very true they do not actually know everything as I have unfortunately learned recently <laughs>
0: Did you always, when you were editing and writing and all of that, was this novel, and I know you referenced this earlier, was it in the background or was it very much like this is? Like, how big a dream was this, are we talking, like, to write a novel?
2: It was a huge dream, but it was one that I did absolutely zilch about between the ages of 23 and 40. Like, I finished my MFA, I, like, abandoned a novel halfway through that process, and in the end just was like, I'm just going to take a bunch of the stories I wrote for workshops and say they're a collection, and that's my thesis. And then I didn't write a single word of fiction, or really even think about writing fiction other than in my head saying, God, I can't believe I'm not writing any fiction, Until I turned 40. I just had, like, I had too much going on and I was too invested in this idea of myself as a guy who had really blown it. It is one chance to write fiction full time, right? I'd done an MFA. I'd taken out all these fucking loans. (laughs) And then all I learned at the end of it was that I couldn't write, like, a hip, edgy, intense novel with characters, like, having weird sex and being mean to each other, the thing that I thought was, like, a literary novel at that point. And one of the reasons that I finally was able to write something was abandoning that idea of the novel I'm supposed to write or realizing that there are things I like to write better and that I'm better at writing and that I'm better at being funny and writing nice characters and putting them in funny situations and writing books in which friendships matter and all the sex is somewhat wholesome.
0: (laughs) There's always your next book, you know, you can try again. Right,
2: I don't know that every book is going to be like that, but, but realizing that a book could be like that, and that didn't mean... That it wasn't literary, and it didn't mean it was a lesser book. And it was dumb that it took me so long to realize that about my own writing. I, you know, I had been reading Laurie Colwyn and Eleanor Lippman and novelists who do this.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I've been reading them for years and loving them, loving what they those books did to my brain and my emotions. But yet, I had this vision of myself as well. I I could never, I would never write something like that. And like getting over myself and my idea of what a novel should be if I write it was basically what i had to do
0: i do feel there's this like maybe not so unspoken but pressure when you're in dealing with the literary world at all like that it has to be more literary like (laughs) i I tried to write i've written i just wrote a novel in my own voice finally that was like so Mm -hmm. much easier right but i tried to write i even wrote like an entire prose poem for a novel and like what was i doing I know it was, it was not good, but it's like we all have to try. I'm like, oh, well, this must – I can write a literary sentence. Like this must be what I'm supposed to do. But but no, right? It's It takes a while to learn.
2: And it takes a while to learn that literary does not necessarily mean the same thing as like groundbreaking or difficult. Right. Like there are groundbreaking, yes. difficult books that I love, but there are also books that feel like warm baths that are still – literary that still explore characters emotions and politics in new and surprising ways they just part of their goal is not to make you feel bad and that is like a totally legitimate structure for a literary novel but it you know it just took me a while to get over myself and realize that
0: (laughs) and so are you working on a new novel and what is that about
2: I mean, g- feel free to give my editor a call and let her know that you're on board. But my editor is looking at a second novel from me right now and trying to decide whether to buy it or not.
0: Seriously, come on. Oh yeah,
2: we're yeah we're right in the thick of it. It was my option book. I don't you know your yeah. listeners may or may not know that when you sign a book contract, usually it involves the same publisher getting the first look at the next thing you write. Yeah. And so I wrote a novel, uh, a second novel, much quicker. I'm happy to say, in the run up to this one being published, because I so desperately wanted to think of or do any else other than stress out about this novel. That was what gave me the impetus to actually write something this time. And uh, she has it. It is indeed totally different. I would not say it's intense and gritty, but it does have monsters in it. And it's set among a bunch of uh, 12-year-old boys. So that's an extremely different vibe. And I had to tap into a very different sense of uh, character than I did with these young and middle-aged, very intelligent women who hardly ever make fart jokes.
0: <laughs> well, good luck with good luck with the editor. Feel free Thanks. to send it over to me.
2: <laughs> my- I'll let her know.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness.
2: Sarah, I'll say. The entire audience of this podcast is begging for this novel. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Built-in
0: audience. You're good. You're good for life. I mean, you know. <laughs> so what what are you reading right now? Like, what's on your bedside table?
2: I just finished Eleanor Catton's new book, Burnham Wood. Yep. She wrote The Luminaries about 10 years ago. She became the youngest person to win the Booker Prize. She's a New Zealander. I lived in New Zealand for a while with my family and wrote a book about the trip that included that stay. I really love New Zealand. I love New Zealand literature, and i I l- totally loved Burnham Wood Eleanor Catton's new book which unlike the luminaries is set in the present in the this instant. It is a techno-thriller, an eco-thriller about a guerrilla gardening group who get mixed up with an Elon Musk-esque American billionaire who's making a panic room bolt hole for himself in the wilds of the South Island of New Zealand. It's got guns. It's got murders. It's got drones. It's got great character work. It's totally, a totally great ride. I love this book. I had a great time reading it. Have you read it?
0: I have not, but I have oh, it's I have it.
2: super fun. I know. Super everybody's fun.
0: recommending it. I have to get
2: to it. I know. Mm-hmm. I feel terrible about it. And she's great. She's like, she has now written three books, each one of them insanely different from the last one. What they all share, which is a thing that I don't have at all, but maybe I could learn from, is they share a really amazing sense of structure. She, mm. she is a writer who goes into books. Knowing the structure, like the luminaries was literally built around the zodiac. That was the structure she gave herself. Burnham Wood is, in ways that I won't spoil, built around Macbeth. That is the structure she gave herself. And she has said in interviews, like it's so useful and freeing to give yourself that structure because, you know, when you're stuck, you can always go back to the source and say, all right, what is this? Give me, you know, you are obviously still making things up. You are still inventing, but you have this like backstop behind you. So whenever you're a little bit lost, or maybe the right metaphor is a map. Whenever you're a little bit lost, you have a map that helps suggest the next place to go.
0: Interesting, cool. And what are you? What are you most excited about that you're working on now at Slate? Is there a piece coming out, or what? What are you excited about?
2: Oh, um, uh, my editors and bosses are so delighted that you asked me. <laughs> I am writing a piece uh, right now about the second most popular play performed in American high schools. It is insanely popular. It's been produced hundreds of times around the country in the last couple of years. And unless your child is a high school student, you almost certainly have never heard of this play. It is an unauthorized Harry Potter parody called Puffs, huh. which is about the seven years of Harry Potter's Hogwarts experience. As seen through the eyes of the Hufflepuffs, (laughs) Um, it is extremely funny, totally delightful, enjoyable, and like a legitimate theatrical hit, like a show that that any theater kid. Growing up in America today probably knows and loves, but the entire generation above them basically has no idea that this play even exists. And so I'm writing about high school theater and and how that ecosystem works and how it is that a show can be a monster hit in that universe and be essentially totally unknown in a different universe.
0: Was this, like, inside intel from your daughters?
2: My daughter was in, in a production of Puffs this fall, yes. And I was like, what the hell is this? Like, I, <laughs> you know, I write I write about theater. I was a theater critic in New York City, like, and I'd never heard of it. And it, it, it was so funny and charming. And I was like, surely this, we must be the first school that's ever done this. And then I looked it up and it's like, Clue is number one and Puffs is number two among American high schools. It's, like, done everywhere.
0: That's so funny. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Last question, but what do people get wrong about you? Like, what's a misperception? Like, what do people think about you that
2: actually is not true? They think I'm cool, but I'm not (laughs) at all. No, no, no one thinks I'm cool. That's not actually a misperception anyone has. I don't know. I actually think I put what seems to me, at least, to be a fairly open and correct version of myself out into the world. Like, social media, I think, accurately reflects both my best and worst qualities so I don't think anyone is fooled into thinking I'm actually like nice all the time or not super judgy or mean sometimes but I would say if I had to say one thing I think people usually assume that I'm like 5'3 but actually I'm just regular height I'm like 5'9 okay. but I have like short guy energy I think <laughs>
0: Did you see the thing in the there was a thing in The New York Post today about all these parents giving their their kids growth hormones and oh um God. you know how that's all the rage
2: we are definitely like two years away from parents sending their kids in for that like leg breaking leg extension surgery that costs forty thousand dollars and only occasionally works. But the parenting universe is completely bananas right now, as you know,
0: as I know, I know. I know. My son's like, hey, uh, can I get this? I'm like 5'7". And I'm like, you're amazing. What are you talking about? I'm 5'2". How tall do you think you're going to be? You know. So anyway. Oh, well. We we get what we get. And we don't yep. get
2: upset. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a great lesson of parenting.
0: <laughs> anyway. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Dan. Thanks for Vintage Contemporaries. So great. And hope to stay in touch.
2: Thanks so much, Zibi. I had a great time.
0: Okay. Take care. Bye-bye.